Welcomen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing the producers. Haben Sie gehört, das deutsche Band? Mit der Bang, mit der Boom, mit der Bing, Bang, Bing, Bang, Boom. Ah, haben Sie gehört, das deutsche Band? Mit der Bang, mit der Boom. Russian folk songs and French But first, and as always, I have to ask, how are you doing? I hope that this episode finds you well. Patty, there are those within the listener community who are very interested in hearing you, hearing you speak for yourself rather than me talking about you when you're mere feet away from me behind a a small pane of glass. People are interested in hearing your voice. And I've tried to tell them that you have told me that you were not interested in being on mic, uh, but they insist, they insist. They want to hear it from your lips. So Patty and I have arranged uh, in this episode, this episode only, we are going to hear Patty and she is going to make it clear that you are not interested in being on mic. So without further ado, without, I, I, I'm talking too much. <laughs> yes, Patty is nodding and she's more than ready. So Patty, take it away. Hey everyone, this is Patty. Just want to say thank you all for your support, but... I am on record as saying I don't like being on mic. Thanks again, and remember, be kind to yourself and to others. That voice, first of all, thank you, Patty, for making that statement, making that clear to our listeners. That voice that you heard is so much more radio-ready than mine. It's astonishing. You should be on the radio. I mean, she's nodding. I mean, she understands the power of that voice. But she uh, is a producer, she's an engineer, and she's an excellent producer and an excellent engineer, and I'm always thankful to have her here on my side. We have something to discuss. We got to talk about it. James Corden uh, has been announced as the host of the next Tony Awards ceremony. This would be uh, his second time in that role. Uh, He initially hosted in 2016. For the record, a performer of color has not hosted the Tony Awards since Whoopi Goldberg hosted in 2008. In total, there have been 110 hosting opportunities handed out since 1947. Eight of those 110 hosting opportunities have gone to performers of color, starting with the most recent, would be Goldberg in 2008. Then we have to go back to 2002 for Gregory Hines. He also hosted in 1995. We have Lena Horne in 1983, Damon Evans and Leslie Uggams in 1977, Cicely Tyson in 1974, Diane Carroll in 1969, and Jose Ferrer in 1965. Several of the ceremonies were led by a group of co-hosts. There were seven co-hosts in 1975, for example, and yet we've still only managed to find and hire eight performers of color since 1947, even though we currently have at our disposal Lin-Manuel Miranda, Dasha Polanco, John Cho, Cynthia Erivo, Hassan Minaj, Aquafina, David Diggs, Nicole Byer, James Monroe Iglehart, Audra McDonald, Leah Salonga, Leslie Odom Jr., Jamila Jamil, Keenan Thompson, Rosie Perez, Ali Wong, Rosario Dawson, Billy Porter. This list, by the way, that I put together myself is nowhere close to being complete, but I think my point has been made. I mean, I get, I get, I don't accept, but I get 
that CBS wants a recognizable figure, but all of the people I just mentioned are highly recognizable. And you know how we make someone more recognizable to a greater number of people? Uh, by giving them the opportunity. But no, <laughs> James, all commentary aside, please come back. Come back a third time, sighs openly. <sighs> so that's the opening segment. As I said before, we're here to talk about The Producers. Uh, the Producers was suggested as a podcast show topic by Brandon Shockney, one of our more recent Patreon donors. Thank you so much, Brandon, for suggesting I talk about this show, which I very much enjoy and which I have enjoyed for many, many years. Let's get some show facts about the producers, shall we? So The Producers is based on the 1967 film, which was written and directed by Mel Brooks. The project was initially envisioned as a novel and then a play before landing as a screenplay. The film, which at the time was known as Springtime for Hitler, that was the original title, was very nearly shelved by executive producer Joseph E. Levine, who thought it was in poor taste and also straight up not funny, just didn't think it was funny. Peter Sellers, who loved the film, managed to convince Levine that the film should be released, though the title was changed to The Producers. Uh, Brooks estimated that he received a letter from, quote, every rabbi in New York after the film was released, and he personally responded to all of these letters to make his intentions clear. Quote, you can't get on a soapbox with Hitler. You've got to ridicule him. The musical version of The Producers won the Tony Award for Best Musical in 2001. It opened on Broadway on April 19th, 2001 at the St. James Theater and ran for 2,502 performances. Hot damn! It currently sits at number 25 on Wikipedia's list of longest-running Broadway shows between Avenue Q at number 24 with 2,534 performances and Kinky Boots at number 26 with 2,481 performances. Uh, I should say Kinky Boots uh, still running, scheduled to close uh, this year on April 7th, 2019, and the final final total that it will have at the end of that run is 2,507 performances. So get ready to be conquered, the producers. That list is going to get a real shakeup. I like when the list gets a shakeup. I like when things move around. Uh, the show broke the record, the producers, I should say, broke the record for the largest single-day box office ticket sales in theater history, taking in more than $3 million in one day. When Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick returned to the show for a limited run, that record was broken again. It was smashed when the show took in more than $3.5 million in a single day. Uh, the book of the producers was written by Mel Brooks and Thomas Meehan. The music and lyrics were by Mel Brooks. When Mel Brooks wrote the handful of songs that were featured in the original 60s film, he hummed the melodies into a tape recorder and had someone else transcribe the music. This is due to the fact that Brooks cannot read music, which is something that we have in common, Mel Brooks. I cannot read music either. Brooks employed the same technique when writing the music for the stage adaptation of the producers, with Glenn Kelly acting as the musical arranger and supervisor. So they sort of worked in tandem with each other to make this score a reality. Writing for the stage adaptation of The Producers was not Brooks's first encounter with Broadway, I should say. He did a rewrite of Shinbone Alley's book in 1957 and wrote the book for All American in 1962. Both musicals were unfortunately flops, but, you know, third time's the charm, as they say. The director of the original Broadway production of The Producers was Susan Stroman. The musical director was Patrick S. Brady. The choreographer was Susan Stroman. The set design was by Robin Wagner. The lighting design was by Peter 
Oh, oh, goodness gracious. Oh, Peter, I do apologize in advance. You're my victim this week. Peter Kazarowski. Kazarowski. Oh, I'm really mangling that even more than usual. A genuine, sincere apology. Costume designed by William Ivy Long. And the original cast included Nathan Lane, Matthew Broderick, who, you know accidentally killed two women in a car crash while driving on the wrong side of the road in Northern Ireland in 1987, but it's not a big deal. He doesn't remember it happening, doesn't have a single memory of it. It was like raining or something that day. Roads get slick, you know, people die. I mean, he agreed to meet the son of the woman that he killed, uh, but then apparently he didn't follow up on that promise, so they never actually met, but whatever. The man's busy. Matthew Broderick is very busy. I mean, he was probably making Good Boy at the time. Good Boy, one of his credits on IMDb. No need to ask any more questions. The original cast also included Gary Beach, Roger Bart, Katie Huffman, and Brad Oscar. Quick note about Roger Bart. Who doesn't love Roger Bart? Moving on. Replacements for the role of Max Bialystok, I found this very interesting, included Tony Danza, no thank you, and Richard Kind. Yes, please, thank you, kindly. Replacements for the role of Leo Bloom included Hunter Foster of Urinetown fame, yes, please, and Roger Bart. So, yeah, Roger Bart got to graduate into the role of Leo Bloom, so yes, please. Uh, There's a commercial available on YouTube that features him in the role of Leo. And then this is my favorite casting out of all of these alternative castings for the roles of Max and Leo. Jason Alexander and Martin Short starred in the 2003 Los Angeles production, and I'm here to say that that sounds like a fucking delight. Thank you very much. Yes, please. Aside from the fact that the producers won the award for Best Musical, it won Best Book of a Musical, Mel Brooks and Thomas Meehan, Best Original Score, Mel Brooks, Best Actor in a Musical, Nathan Lane. Uh, In that same category, Matthew Broderick was nominated for Best Actor, so he lost out to Nathan Lane. I'm sure that was a crazy moment. Uh, The show also won Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Gary Beach. Uh, It was nominated for Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Roger Bart. So again, two guys within the same category can competing against each other. Oh my god, so three... (laughs) This is insane. I I should have understood how crazy this was. Three Best Featured Actor nominees. So... Uh, The winner wound up being Gary Beach, but the other nominees in that category were Roger Bard, as I just said, and then also Brad Oscar. That's just crazy. Uh, Other wins for the show, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Katie Huffman. Best Direction of a Musical, Susan Stroman. Best Choreography, Susan Stroman. Best Orchestrations, Doug Besterman. Best Scenic Design, Robin Wagner. Best Costume Design, William Ivy Long. And Best Lighting Design, Peter Kazowski. I apologize again, Peter. So 15 nominations total, 12 wins. The producers is one of the few musicals to win in every category for which it was nominated, which is astounding. Let's talk about uh, Tony records. We talked about some box office records earlier, but uh, so the producers broke a lot of Tony records, broke them up real good. To be clear, the records I'm about to detail all fall under the category of Broadway musicals, just the musical banner, as Broadway plays have their own separate history of Tony records and who beat who and this, that, and the other. By taking home 12 awards, the producers broke a record previously held by Hello, Dolly, which won 10 awards in 1964. The win record has not been beaten to this day, so the producer still holds the record for the most awards taken home, though Hamilton did come very close in 2016 when it took home 11 awards. The producers also held the record for most nominations until it was tied by Billy Elliot the Musical in 2009 and finally beaten by Hamilton, which received 16 nominations in 2016. It took me a while to confirm which 
show the producers originally beat out for this nomination record, but I'm pretty sure it's the original production of Company, which was nominated 14 times in 1974. Oddly, it took me a while to confirm that. It wasn't easily available, and I was only able to confirm that through a Playbill.com photo slideshow. So thank you, Playbill.com. I always post your news items, and now you're helping me with the research. So thank you very much. Uh, Let's get a nice plot breakdown of the show. So Max Bialystok, as originally played by Nathan Lane, is a horribly down-on-his-luck theatrical producer. His latest production, Funny Boy, which is a musical adaptation of Shakespeare's Hamlet, is ridiculed and reviled by audiences and critics alike. He is desperate. He is broke. He is also having sex with any number of elderly senior citizen women within the city of New York. And he is doing it so he can pursue... I mean, at a certain point, I think he was bringing in money from these women to help produce his productions, but at this point, he is now just having sex with them for money so he can simply survive. He comes into contact with Leo Bloom, as originally played by Matthew Broderick. Uh, Leo Bloom is a public accountant, and he reveals to Max that his latest production, the the expenses and the budget didn't match, and so uh, Max, he didn't know this, but he raised $2,000 more than he needed to. Let's say he fucked six women more than he ever needed to to meet the budget of his latest play. And Leo, very casually, very out, you know, just he's throwing out a thought, a little brain experiment. And he says, you know, you can maybe make more money with a flop than a hit if you just raised a ton of money. If you raised a million dollars more than you needed, you could pocket that money once the show flopped and closed on Broadway. This gives Max a humdinger of an idea. He steals uh, Leo's idea and he wants to make it into a reality. This scares the living shit out of Leo, but Max is convinced they're going to raise $2 million, one for Max and one for Leo, and they're going to find the worst play ever written, uh, saddle it with the worst direct and cast ever assembled. And before they can snap their fingers, the show will close and they'll go to Rio with all of the extra money. Leo is reluctant at first, but when he is once again humiliated by his superior at the accounting firm that he works for, he realizes that it's always been his dream to be a Broadway producer like Max. So he goes back to Max and he says, I'm in. They enlist Roger Debris uh, to direct. Uh, Roger Debris is a very flamboyant, very gay man who takes to wearing dresses every now and again. Max and Leo are very unsettled by this fact, but Max is uh, sure to tell Leo, no, trust me, Roger is the worst director in the entire city. We have to have him working on this play. But you might be asking, what is the play that they stumble upon? What is the play that they deem the worst that they have ever come across? Well, it is a play known as Springtime for Hitler, which is written by Franz Liebkind. Uh, Franz is very obviously a Nazi who is really not hiding all that well. He's 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 hiding in plain sight, I guess, is the very uh, archaic turn of phrase that we could apply to Franz. Franz is very devoted to Nazism and Adolf Hitler, so much so that when uh, Max and Leo first approach him about producing his play on Broadway, he makes them take the Siegfried Oath and essentially says that they will never do anything to demean the name, the, the glorious name and legacy of Adolf Hitler. So Roger Debris ultimately does agree to direct the show, and 
they try to find uh, the best person that they can, a.k.a. the worst person in the minds of Max and Leo. They, they hold this open call for the role of Adolf Hitler, but no one is really fitting right with the role until Franz himself gets on stage and sings, and Max decides, fantastic, our playwright, Franz, is going to play Hitler. Everything is coming together. This couldn't be more horrific and fucked up if we tried. This is going to close before intermission. Uh, but before the curtain goes up, Franz breaks his leg, and Roger Debris has to step into the role of Hitler. When the curtain comes up, the audience is horrified at first, but when they see Roger, this very wildly gay man, throwing himself around the stage and being an utter buffoon, they think that it's a satire. They think that it's purposeful. That the, the show is a satire on Hitler. It's making him out to be this wildly flamboyant gay man, and the audience loves it. They think it's hilarious and smart, and everybody says, this is going to run for 20 years, and every review in the newspapers, it's, it's wildly positive. It's glowing. And Max and Leo are, of course, devastated. Franz is even more devastated when he witnesses Roger on stage in, in the role that the role that he thought he was going to get to play, but also he, the role is this man that he worships. He worships Adolf Hitler, and when the audience is laughing at his hero, he goes berserk. He, he, he snaps. He shows up at the offices of Max and Leo, uh, threatening to kill them. Uh, ultimately, <laughs> I think Leo at a certain point vanishes. He vanishes with a character named Ula Inga Hansen Benson Janssen Tallen Hollens Faden Swanson. Very Mel Brooks name. Ula is the secretary to Max and Leo. I believe she also uh, earns a role in the show Springtime for Hitler at a certain point. Uh, but she's this very buxom, very bubbly uh, Swedish woman, I believe. And she has fallen in love with Leo. So they, in the middle of all of the chaos that's caused by Franz and the police showing up, they vanish and they escape to Rio while uh, Max is dragged to prison. Max is, you know, furious. He feels like he has been betrayed. And when he is brought before the judge, he thinks he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But that's when Leo shows up and turns himself in because he understands that leaving Max behind was wrong. And over the course of the show, they have become friends. And so they agree to go into prison together. They go into prison and they start producing this show called Prisoners of Love. And the cast apparently is going to be made up entirely of real convicts. But in the middle of rehearsing Prisoners of Love, it is announced that they have been pardoned for bringing smiles and joy to the public. So they are set free. And at the very end of the show, we see a Broadway version of Prisoners of Love. And Max and Leo and Ula were able to walk off into the sunset together, assured of their continued success on Broadway. Key elements of that plot I just broke down, including a theatrical producer who sleeps with his elderly female investors, and the concept of failing upwards by raising gross amounts of money, those were inspired by people that Mel Brooks actually knew and worked for when he was very young. Uh, per the Internet Movie Database, I, I'm just throwing out little IMDb trivia nuggets here, uh, the character of Roger Debris, the wildly gay director, was inspired by Ed Wood. Thoughts on the producers from a 2019 perspective. I know I, I stepped onto my soapbox earlier, right at the beginning of the episode, but I'm stepping onto my soapbox again so I can more easily mount my high horse. Strap in my musical minions. By the way, I should say, that's what I am calling you now. Uh, by the way, listeners are now known as my musical minions. A banana. 
The character of Franz Liebkin, let's talk about him. He's depicted as the last of a dying breed, a Nazi living on the fringe of society who is disturbed, but we're meant to see him as ridiculous. He exists within a farce, after all, and so we are assured that his violent tendencies will never result in any real harm. I don't think Mel Brooks was naive enough to think that Nazi rhetoric was a relic of the past in the 60s or the early 2000s, but Franz and his actions take on a darker tone in 2019. They just do. I think it's completely unavoidable. Franz is a fanatic. The play he writes, Springtime for Hitler, that's his manifesto. It's his love letter to the Third Reich, and a Upon experiencing humiliation, he immediately becomes a very real active shooter. I'm all for escapist entertainment, I am, but I can't not make these connections, you know? Uh, Let's also discuss how Franz is humiliated. I I went into this earlier, but the only reason Springtime for Hitler becomes a hit within the world of the producers is because its director, Roger Debris, goes on in the role of Hitler. Roger's wild effeminacy defangs Hitler and makes it seem as if the work was meant to be a satire rather than a love letter. By contrast, the original film made a mockery of Hitler by turning him into a beatnik. A beatnik. That's what makes Franz so furious in the original film. Uh, This was fine for Brooks in 1967, but by 2001, he was choosing to rob Hitler of his power by making him gay. What do we take from that revision? Well, we know the Third Reich was fueled not only by anti-Semitism, but homophobia. By making Hitler gay, is that simply a matter of turning him into that which he hated? Mel Brooks has been quoted as saying, this is in addition to what I, I mentioned earlier, quote, the only real way I could get even with Hitler and company was to bring them down with laughter. So should we leave it at that? Or should we consider that millions of people, real people, Real people sitting as members of real audiences genuinely think that gay people are nothing more than jokes. We're playing in tricky territory here. We are, especially when you consider how gay people in general are portrayed in the producers. All of the men are lavender-soaked Nellies, and the one gay woman we encounter is so catatonically butch, she's basically Frankenstein. I I can already hear the line of reasoning coming at me. You know, Jonathan, it's a farce. Everyone depicted on stage is a buffoon, not just the gay characters. It's a chance to laugh at the stereotypes that have so long defined us as a society, not legitimize them. That's a creaky, it's it's somewhat reasonable, but it's a creaky thesis at the same time. If that is actually the thesis of the show, if we're going along that line of thinking, I'm not convinced it's communicated well enough. When Max and Leo draw back in disgust upon seeing Roger Debris in a dress, I guess I should say Leo is more put off and disgusted than Max, who's used to it. Uh, the, the, by the way, the image of Roger Debris in a dress is such a muddled smorgasbord of stereotypes, and it denigrates several communities at once, so I'll just say that as well. Who is your uncle laughing at when he sees Leo drawing back in disgust? Your uncle from Indiana. Let's just get in his mind. Is he laughing at Max and Leo for experiencing gay panic? Or is he laughing at Roger? And if he is laughing at Roger, it's because he's an egomaniac, the character is an egomaniac and a tasteless hack director? Or is it simply because he's a gay dude in a dress? And if it did come down 
to a gay dude in a dress. And you tried to have a conversation with your uncle about that. Would your uncle from Indiana brush you off and say, uh, come on, it's just a comedy. Lighten up, snowflake. You know, a great deal of the criticism expressed by minority communities is dismissed by people who claim they're being too sensitive. They're taking something too seriously. And sometimes the people who say those things, sometimes, occasionally, those people turn out to be Nazis. I don't necessarily think we should go back. This is the part of the show where I say, I don't necessarily think, but it has to be said. I don't think we need to go back and give the producers this aggressive makeover from the ground up, but we should be able to re-examine it, right? Even if it is just a goofy comedy. Why do people say that? It's just a comedy, it's harmless. You can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't espouse the earth-shaking power of comedy. You know, the, the ability of comedy to uh, tear down systems and, and make fools of our, our greatest enemies and our greatest dictators. Comedy has power. It's, it is a weapon. It's a weapon. It's, it's the best form of free speech. You can't say that and in the same breath say, oh, it's harmless. It's harmless. It's just, it's silly times. It's silly times when someone starts criticizing the comedy you enjoy. P.S. You also can't come at me with, you know, a lot of gay people thought it was funny and still think it's funny, so it's fine. I mean, gay people perpetuate cycles of homophobia all the time to survive, and a lot of the time they don't even know it. You know what gay people love that's a farce stuffed with stereotypes but manages to make its characters human and give them agency? The birdcage. Let's just agree that maybe the birdcage is doing a better job of representation than the producers. Uh, not hard to do. I think we can all agree on that. For the purposes of this podcast episode, I watched the 1967 film. It had been so long since I'd seen this that watching it again felt like it was my first time at the rodeo. I remembered it as being much more vicious, especially in how Zero Mostel in the role of Max uh, berates and abuses Gene Wilder's Leo. But that material is actually quite tame when I, when I saw it again. That's how I sort of processed it. It's quite tame. So I'm not sure why people think of the musical as being sanitized. It's the Nazi stuff that still reads as intentionally offensive. That, that stuff certainly wasn't sanitized when it came to adapting the show for, you know, adapting the movie for the stage. So I'm not really sure where that criticism is coming from. I also listened to, of course, the 2001 original Broadway cast album. This album was on heavy rotation when I was in college. So that would be uh, to date and age myself, uh, 2004 through 2008. Uh, this album sat right alongside Avenue Q, Wicked and the Scarlet Pimpernel. Some of you college queens from that era were obsessed with Spring Awakening, and to you I say, I cannot relate. So, yes, listened to this a lot in college, sat down with it again on Friday, and it was a wonderful listening experience. I watched the 2001 Tony's clip. I think what we're getting here in that clip is the first act's uh, closing sequence. I, I know for a fact that that's what it is. We start with the song Along Came Bialy. We end with an old-fashioned medley of all the songs that we've heard throughout that first act. Uh, for my money, I would have preferred to see Lane and Broderick on stage more. I would have preferred to maybe see them perform the song We Can Do It, as they only flit in and out of this performance. Broderick barely has to do anything, and you can tell he's barely interested in getting that accomplished. So he seems a little checked out, is what I'm trying to say. And then finally, in regards to the 2005 film adaptation of the musical, which was also directed by Susan Stroman, uh, it's her only film credit. The film made... Uh, $19 million domestically and $38 million globally on a production budget of $45 million. I, I considered dipping 
looking back into this film, watching it again. But I've seen it, I think, at least two, if not three times already. So I feel like my frame of reference for it is fresh. Uh, the movie is fine. It just in no way replicates the uh, energy you'd feel with a live theater audience. I'll go a little bit into how it's filmed as we move through the song deconstruction. Oh, and what a coincidence. It's time for the song deconstruction. Yay! I don't think I understood that this show has a full, nearly four-minute long overture, which I love. I guess I always assumed it was one of those shows that had a mini overture. We've talked about this before in past episodes. Overtures that last maybe 90 seconds long, if that. Uh, anyway, good on you, uh, the producers. Rock that full-length overture. It's a, always a classy way to go. Opening night. It's opening night. The song Opening Night, uh, this does a great job of setting the tone and defining the style of humor we'll be getting from Mel Brooks throughout the evening. It's going to be jaunty, it's going to be raucous, it's going to be sarcastic, it's going to be straight up bonkaroo tomfoolery. For whatever reason, I, I have a lot of affection and I feel very nostalgic when I hear the two women who open this track open the show when they're singing about opening night, it's opening night, it's Max Bialis Talk's latest show. Will it flop or will it go? I love those two ladies. I really like hearing those first lines from them. Opening night is just a, a great way to open the show in general. There'll be gala opening nights again. You'll see my name in lights again. I'll go from dark to brights again. My spirit's high as kites again. I'll never suffer slights again. I'll taste those sweet delights again. No plethora of flights again. No blossoming of lights again. No frantic fits or frights again. Fame is in my sights again. I'll take those fancy flights again. I'm gonna scale the heights again. Bialystok will never drop. Bialystok will never stop. Be Stock will be on top So when Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick first left the cast of the producers, the show saw a steep drop-off in ticket sales, which precipitated their return for the limited run I mentioned earlier. If you ask me, it's Nathan Lane that makes the show, not Broderick. I think Lane is the reason why people were coming to the show, coming back again and again, and it's because Lane owns the role of Max. It is it is certifiably his uh, through the end of time. He kicks this introductory number, the King of Broadway, into the stratosphere, making every line work simply via his perfect style of delivery. Uh, just some of the lines that I always enjoy. There was a time when I was young and gay, but straight. You've heard of theater in the round. I invented theater in the square. Nobody had a good seat. Who do you have to fuck to get a break in this town? Excellent F-bomb. Excellent use 
of the F word just dropped right in there. Love it. I It gets a big laugh. There's a clip of him doing it, I think, during the original Chicago tryout, and the audience just roars when he says that line. It's great. So Nathan Lane's, you know, he, he's got this delivery style that's one part snagglepuss exasperation mixed with cobra-like anger. He snips and he snipes at you just when you least expect it. He comes for you. It gets me every time. And I I wouldn't fault an actor for straight up copying the line readings like I was doing. Uh, but yes, this song is great. It was cut from the 2005 film, though I do believe it's available via the deleted scenes. I think I, I, I think I just know that. The filming of that number, The King of Broadway for the movie, that's a great example, if you just watch that, of how Stroman keeps the camera on a rigid 2D plane. So the camera is moving left and right, but it's never going into the scene, like it's within the world. We never feel like we're truly within the world that it's covering. It's like we're on a tram ride at Disney World, if you have any reference for that. You're just sort of moving along like you're on a ride. Uh, We're watching a very, very expensive version of the stage show when we watch the movie, and there's little to no effort to bring a cinematic flair to the proceedings, and I think that's why it bummed a lot of people out. You know, and again, it's not the same when you're watching a movie with it. You know, you're in a dark theater with a movie audience as opposed to a live, you know, really wild, whipped up, ready to go theater audience. You cannot compare those two experiences. Why, you miserable, cowardly, wretched little caterpillar, don't you ever want to become a butterfly? Don't you want to spread your wings and flap your way to glory? I love We Can Do It. My commentary on some of these shows really shouldn't come down to, uh, gee golly, it sure would be fun to do this show. But fuck it, We Can Do It is a red hot spark that ignites this plot, and I would love to realize it on stage. This is the moment where, you know, Max lays out the entire scheme for Leo, and Leo is just sent into a tailspin at the mere idea, the idea of lying, the idea of finding success, and having women uh, <laughs> caress him and then dressing him. Oh, it sends him into a panic. It's it's all just very funny. Uh, the musical through line for Max during this song is very strong and steady, like Max is continuously, maybe roughly, patting Leo on the back, whereas Leo gets to be this jittery woodpecker in the song. He's, he's spitting out his lyrics as he spirals into that panic attack. And then at the end, the two come together so well, and darn it all if I'm not smiling at the end of this track every single time. It's one of my favorite songs on the entire album. Greatest, grandest, and most fabulous producer in the world. I just gotta be a producer. Drink champagne until I puke. Drink champagne till you puke. I wanna be a producer. Show the world just what I got. I'm gonna put on shows that will improve. Read my name in a wet 
Cause it's everything I'm not unhappy, unhappy. I've also always really enjoyed Leo's big number, I Want to Be a Producer, from its very beginnings, where he's sitting with the utterly morose public accountants, his peers at their cramped desks, uh, to the song's big finish when uh, Leo gets to stand proudly on his own two feet, having quit his accounting job, and he's standing with these, these beautiful chorus girls in gold gowns. He's so proud of himself, and he's so happy in that moment. I think I want to play Leo for his misery, the misery we see at the beginning of this track. He has this uh, spark of confidence, and then towards the middle point, right before he quits his job, he sinks one more time when he says, because it's, he says, I want to be a producer because it's everything I'm not. I love that misery that, that he has the high highs and the low lows that I absolutely can relate to. He's got this anchor hanging around his neck, and it turns him into such a pathetic sobbing sap. Uh, this is also why I should say why I would also enjoy playing uh, Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors. So, Patty, uh, yeah, I know, I know, I told you recently to not answer the phone, but though those offers field them right toward me, Patty. Uh, thank you very much. Here Leo gets to dance freely through the wildest corners of his imagination, and it's just so dorky and delightful. I will say I don't especially like or even get the joke where, so the chorus girls I mentioned in their their gold outfits, they pop out of the walls of the accounting firm in this very fantastical, stylized moment, and they're all nearly identical. You know, they're, they're chorus girls, so they all look identical, and they're all very traditionally attractive. And then there's this joke where Another woman walks on stage, uh, sort of tugging at her dress as if she's just put it on. And the joke is that we're supposed to cite her as being ugly, quote-unquote ugly. She she is not identical to, you know, all the other white women chorus girls that we're looking at who look like, you know, supermodels or whatever. And Leo... He says to all of the chorus girls, I want to I want to see you and I want to see you. Yes, you're beautiful. I want to meet all of you and be with all of you in real life outside of this fantasy. And then he points at the last woman who walked on stage, the quote unquote ugly woman. And he says, not you. Because as the audience is already, you know, I'm catching up to the audience at this moment. I'm seeing you for the first time. And I, I recognize that you are supposed to be ugly, so I'm not gonna fuck you. It's this weird, it's just so pointless, and it's so mean-spirited, this one-off, and I think it should be clipped from the show. I mean, why are we making anyone play the ugly chorus girl? That's so fucked up. Stop it. You know how this could work, though? And this is the only idea, like, if you have to have the not you moment, he points at someone and says, not you, I don't want to fuck you. Replace the ugly chorus girl with one of the clerks from the accounting firm. Maybe somehow one of the clerks has bled into Leo's fantasy sequence and he's dancing with the chorus girls and Leo just looks at him and he says, not you, not because, you know, it's a matter of him being ugly, but because, oh, you're a guy. No, thanks. So we're just establishing that, you know, this just wouldn't work. And that's, I don't think that's mean-spirited. I I think that's funny if you just saw one of the guys in his, you know, he's not wearing a chorus girl's outfit. He's just wearing his suit and tie, and he's just dancing along until Leo dismisses him. I think that's the only way that it would work for me. That, again, putting on my director's hat, I'm trying to, you know, fix the show, quote-unquote, but I think I definitely would make that change. 
In regards to the songs in Old Bavaria and Der Guten Tag Hot Club, these are Franz's uh, big songs. He gets another one in the, in the second act, uh, but this is how we're first introduced to him by this one-two punch. And I realized Franz is kind of a crap part, right? I don't think you necessarily want to play Franz. These are definite skip tracks when you're listening to the album. Don't feel bad if you want to skip over them. I just don't think it would be nearly as fun to play the crazy of Franz as it would be to play the neuroses of Leo, the anger of Max, or the effeminacy of Roger, or his assistant, Carmen. I, I forget. I completely forgot to mention that uh, Carmen Gia is a is a big supporting character. He's he's Roger's assistant. Uh, that's that was Roger Bart's original role before he went on to graduate to the role of Leo. Uh, I also really enjoy the role of Carmen. Uh, so again, the the character of Franz uh, he he becomes an active shooter. We really can't get around that. So not exactly the biggest source of he he's and ha has in 2019. I just I have a feeling the audience would be most most unwilling to laugh at the of Franz, especially in this day and age where now more than ever, it seems like Nazis are just more than willing to just walk this street and be fucking proud about it. It, it would be a little uncomfortable, I think. Couldn't agree with you more. And you have our blessings, Roger, to make springtime for Hitler just as gay as anyone could possibly want. So come on, do it for us, please. No, I'm sorry, Max, but it's simply not my cup of tea. But still... Fair is fair. Perhaps I should ask my production team what they think. This is my set designer, Brian. Keep it glad. Keep it mad. Keep it gay. And here's my costume designer, Kevin. Hello. Keep it happy. Keep it snappy. Keep it gay. We're clever, creative. It's our job to see that everything's perfect. Next, Scott, my choreographer. Hi there. And ah, finally, last and least, my lighting designer, Shirley Mockowitz. Keep it gay, keep it gay, keep it gay. Okay, so let's talk about the song Keep It Gay, shall we? I think there will always be a part of me that casts side-eye at a number like this, but I also, that it, I can't pretend as if it's not this excellent, frothy milkshake concoction. It's just, it's so buzzy and bubbly and fun. If I were to be offered the role of either Roger or Carmen, and I am offer only, I should say that, Patty, when you're getting those calls, I would accept said offer. I would, even though these characters are, you know, ageless. <laughs> They're both ancient and ageless stereotypes. I, I mainly want to play Carmen, I think, so I can see just how long I can hold out the lisp in the word yes. That's a joke leading into this number. Uh, you see, uh, Carmen just holds the S in the word yes for as long as he possibly can. It's this helium balloon hiss that goes on for 30 seconds. No one would want me as Carmen because I, th I think I would do a good job, but you would have to tell me at a certain point to stop indulging my more hammy, idiotic tendencies. Uh, it's a very dumb joke, but I would just have so much fun with it. Uh, but again, keep it gay. Yes, it's it's whipping up a cauldron of stupid stereotypes, but it's it's fun. I'm, I'm just going to give it. I'm going to get off my high horse, step off my soapbox and just say, keep it gay, I guess you're A-OK -okay with me. Then you got it. Show it. Put your hidden treasures on display. Violinists love to play an Easter egg. But audiences really love a 
cheese drink Then you got it Shout it Let's hover here what you're about Oh, clothes may make a man All a girl needs is a tan Then you got it Let it hang out Remember what Ula dance? Yeah Ula dance again! You know what lyrics I never understood from when you've got it, flaunt it were? I never understood what these lyrics were until this week. You just heard it. I, I would have played the clip just now. Uh, but the, the lyric is, violinists love to play an E string, but audiences really love a G string. I never understood what she was saying. I've been listening to this album since I was in college. I just never got it. Uh, But, you know, you learn new things hosting this show. You do. The role of Ula was marginally expanded when adapting the 1960s film for the stage. In the original film, she's really nothing more than a taut body that Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder can gawk at. It's also implied that she has sex with Zero Mostel as part of her job description. She She's like eager to fuck Zero Mustel. It's a crummy part. In the stage version, Ula is eye candy, admittedly, for the male leads, yes. But, you know, she also gets to fall in love with a man. She falls in love with Leo, as we've said. And she gets to knock out this one showstopper when you've got it, flaunt it. It's not much, and I have a feeling most women don't stay up at night dreaming about this role of Ula. But at least someone understood that Ula deserved more. She is the only female role of importance in a gigantic group of men, after all. As a director, yes, I'm putting on my director's hat. Uh, This is not a matter of me trying to fix the show. I just have a different interpretation of how Ula could be realized on stage. I would toy with the idea of playing Ula as a smoky very dry femme fatale upon first introduction, then revealing her as having this well of physical and vocal energy she can tap into during the song. So she goes from a dry Greta Garbo, I want to be alone type, very dead-eyed, to the belter that we see in the song. I think that could work and would be a very fun alternative to how Ula is usually played, which is one note bubbly from, you know, moment A to moment Z. Life had passed us by. And love had stolen away At the end of our rope We'd given up hope Of one lost thrill in the hay Discarded dogs Abandoned wrecks Condemned to a life of sitting and knitting When all we really wanted was (laughs) Sex! Ah, did you bring the checky, my little turtle dove? Yes, but first, Bialy, can we please play one dirty little game? Here in broad daylight? It'll just be a quickie. Okay, what, what? Let's play the distracted tourist and the ever-watchful orangutan. Oi, are you trying to kill me? Please, I'm exhausted. Let's play one game where there's absolutely no sex. What? How about the Jewish princess and her husband? Along came Bialy as the aforementioned focal point from the Tony's medley. I suppose if you think old women doing trampoline jumps is funny, then United the Theater is going to really pop during this number. I admit I do kind of like the tap sequence as realized by the walkers. All of the old women have walkers. Cha-cha-cha. 
they, they have this whole fake tap number going on, which is which is very silly and fun. But on the whole, the song Along Came the Alley, it does feel like padding until we get to that first act finale and that medley. Uh, does it help the fact that the burned CD of the cast album I had in college omitted this track? It was I didn't understand that the song existed until much later. Uh, sure, that that may have affected my opinion of this song. Uh, maybe maybe I think it's disposable because of that. Sue me. That face, that face, that lovable face, it melts my Swedish heart. I'm certain if I fall in love, I'm lost without a trace. But it's worth it for Act two opens with That Face, which is a song that is sung between Leo and Ula as they very quickly fall in love. I would say if you're pinching off a nasty, itchy turtle head in the bathroom during intermission, maybe don't hurry back in fear of missing this number, which is fine, but it is just eminently skippable. It's an odd bit also of genuine romantic sentiment in what is otherwise an aggressively screwball comedy, yet I can never tell if we're supposed to really care about Ula and Leo getting together. Was this love story inserted because it was deemed vital or because audiences expect some kind of romantic angle or we expect them to expect that angle. Again, I'm glad Ula gets to be a human being instead of this sentient pair of breasts like she was in the film, but I find it curious how the straight characters get to experience true love while the gays are shown to be kind of smear-faced and miserable. You know, can gays love like the straights? Are their love stories worthy of unironic stage time? The world may never know. (laughs) If you don't mind, I'm going to skip over Habensiege Hort das Deutsche Band so we can talk about You Never Say Good Luck on opening night. I don't classify this as a skippable song. I classify this as uh, this should have been cut before the show made it to Broadway. Between this and Along Came Bialy, I would actually argue that the show has a bit too much music for its own good. Just a bit too much for its own good. The show doesn't need to be two hours long, everybody. That, um, that's all I'm going to say. Let's move on to springtime for Hitler. I'll myself to me I'm the kraut who's out to change our history I'll myself raise your hand there's no greater dictator in the land everything I do I do for you if you're looking for a war here's World War II I'll myself raise your beer every hotsy totsy Nazi stand and cheer every hotsy totsy Nazi this clip on YouTube. It's a clip of the extended version of this sequence, the Springtime for Hitler sequence, and it's from the pre-Broadway Chicago production. It's on YouTube, and in it, I, I, I find this to be utterly ridiculous, but I can see why they cut it. I think it adds another three minutes to the overall sequence, which on its own, I think, borders on ten. Uh, in this extended sequence, Hitler faces off against Stalin, Churchill, and FDR. Uh, Hitler pushes FDR in his wheelchair off the stage and into the the wings while the president screams, oh shit! 
it's an undeniably fantastic sequence that really knows how to keep heightening the joke of, you know, being utterly tasteless and horrible. Some of the lyrics, they land like a frying pan to your skull. The winter for Poland and France, that, that lyric is really unsettling. I will say nothing is really more fucked up or horrifying than watching the audience from that YouTube clip I just described, watching them applaud at the sight of a giant swastika made up of chorus members. You know, there's this giant mirror that appears above the chorus, the ensemble, and we're able to see the swastika they've created with their bodies. The audience in that YouTube clip goes absolutely bonkers. It's an image pulled directly from the original film from the 60s, but I'll never get over people going nuts over a giant swastika. It's so weird and uncanny. You kind of feel like you're on another planet. Mel Brooks, I mean, I gotta hand it to you. You successfully made me uncomfortable. Thank not. I don't know if I should be saying thank you, but you did it. You were successful. Good for you. How could this happen? The show was lousy and long. We did everything wrong. Where did we go right? Christmas came early to Broadway this year, and guess who they stuffed in our stocking? Adolf Hitler. It was so crass and so crude, even Goebbels would have booed. Where did we go right? Last night, a star was born on Broadway. The lovely Miss Ulla Inga Hansen Benson, Janssen Tollen Hollands Faden Svansen. We predict that her name will soon be up in lights. If they can find enough bulbs. I don't think this was intentional, but where did we go right? Uh, sums up the first two thirds of the show, much like Betrayed will a little further down the line. But it's not as successful as Betrayed winds up being by a long shot. Considering this is a duet and Betrayed is a solo for Nathan Lane, I'm just once again going to give all of the credit to Lane as the X factor for this show's success. I mean, Nathan Lane, you're killing it here. Let's get the clip of Betrayed. Enough talk. Let's get this. How did it begin? He walked into my office with his cockamamie scheme. You can make more money with a flop than with a hit. We can do it. We can do it. I can't do it. We can do it. I can't do it. Goodbye, Max. Lord, I want that money. I'm back, Max. Come on, Leo. We can do it. Step one. Find the play. See it, smell it, touch it, kiss it. Hello, Mr. Liebkin. Guten Tag, pop, pop. Guten Tag, pop, pop. Adolf Elizabeth Hitler. Guten Tag, pop, pop. Guten Tag, pop, pop. Step two, hire the director. Keep it gay, keep it gay, keep it two, three, kick turn, 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 kick turn. Oola, wah, 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 wah. Step three, raise the money. Along gang, Bialy, intermission. Step four, hire all the actors. A wandering minstrel, I a thing of shreds. And next, the little wooden boy. Next, that's our Hitler. Opening night, good luck, good luck, good luck. Break a leg, I broke my leg. Springtime for Hitler and Germany, a surprise smash. Springtime for Hitler and Germany, it'll run for years. Where did we go right? Where did we go right? Give me those books, fat, fat, fatty. Give me those books, fat, fat, fatty. Books, fat, books, fat, books, fat, books, fat. Lousy fruit, kill the actors you ever eat with one. Then you ran to Rio and you're safely out of reach. I'm behind these bars, you're banging Ula on the beach. 
You're killing it. Nathan Lane, I love Betrayed. I could watch Nathan Lane be impotently angry, ranting from a prison cell on stage all day. That could be its own show. Here we get a Cliff Notes version of the plot that comes at us like machine gun fire, highlighting every major line and gag that we've enjoyed, and even taking a, a moment, a meta moment, to honor the intermission. It's a comedic powerhouse in the right hands, and few have more capable hands than Mr. Nathan Lane. Mr. Lane, your hands! Leo, I... I never realized. You're a good singer. Thank you, Max. I sang it for you. I sang it because I'm your friend. You are? Gee, I've had a lot of relationships, but you couldn't call any of them friend. But come to think of it, no one ever, ever really knew me till him. Everyone was always out to screw me till him. Never met a man I ever trusted, always dealt with shysters in the past. Now I'm well adjusted Cause I've got a friend At last Don't help me Till Him is the only other moment beyond that face where the characters actually try to connect with each other in a way that's not snarky. It's actually meant to be, I, I feel very warm and human. And I like how quiet this is, the, the quiet, warm nature of Till Him, and how it's a love letter to, I, I have to assume this is purposeful, it seems like a love letter to It Only Takes a Moment from Hello, Dolly. Both songs take place in a courtroom. Both move the ensemble to a rapturous choral outcry. I just think it's a really nice classy homage, so I gotta tip my hat to you again, Mr. Brooks. That's that's real nice. Gotta sing, sing. Gotta sing, sing. Okay, boys, breaks over. Let's take it from the top. This is good. Hey, Bloom, put me down for ten grand. Prisoners of love, blue skies above. Can't keep a high of Love and Leo and Max. I mean, come on, what a cute as buttons, catchy as fuck send-off. This is connected to this, this weird criticism I've read about how the musical is, is sanitized, it's it's happier, and I think people talk about the ending. That's what they talk about. They talk about how the stage version has a happier ending than that of the film, but I, I didn't really notice any major differences in tone. I mean, if you count Max and Leo being pardoned in the stage version and going free as a happier ending, I mean... Sure, I guess that makes sense. That doesn't happen in the film. I I think they just remain in prison. But Max and Leo aren't miserable at the end of the film. They actually seem like they're doing quite fine. Look, why are we arguing? Stop yelling at me. That's the end of the song deconstruction portion, and now we are going to get a musical shout-out. That's right, a musical shout-out for Haley, our most recent Patreon donor. Haley, thank you for me, and now take it away. Musical shout-out. Activate. 
now, let's see. Uh, Haley. Ah, it says, yes, Haley, not Hallie. There is a note here. Haley. <laughs> ah, so Haley is the most recent Patreon donor. <laughs> How fascinating. Well, Haley, as I muse here in my potion shop, I must wonder and ask myself how to show our gratitude to this alien. I suppose I could turn her into a chair. No, that wouldn't do. No one actually wants to be turned into a chair, except for that one guy. What a weirdo. No, I think I'll whip up a nice smoothie for Haley, yes. But what to put in the smoothie? Well, of course, there's beans, beans, a lot of fucking beans, green and lima, nivy and pinto, kidney and mung and oh, yes, let's have plenty of peas, black-eyed sugar snap, snow and field and oh, shit, gonna add some chives, a chive of five will make this jive, don't forget the chicory, do not forget the leeks, and most of all, do not forget to drop the beets, yes, beets, beets, DJ, drop the beets, and fuck it while we're at it, drop cucumbers, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, buck Joy, okra, pumpkin and onions, trumps and tomatoes and Jerusalem, artichokes, eggplants, Brussels sprouts and avocados, yams, corn, grape leaves, hearts of palm. Oh, ring for your mother and sound the alarm. It's the best smoothie, such a healthy snack. All for you, Haley. Drink up and sit back. Drink up all the squash, basil too, potatoes, tomatillos, I admit it's basil. Basically a stew, chayotes, gorabi, and the beans. <sighs> Could you salt? Final thoughts on the producers. Final thoughts on the producers. Final thoughts on the producers. Despite my reservations, I found I still have a lot of affection and nostalgia for the producers that managed to survive my days as a fucked up college student. It's a home run crowd pleaser that I that I think will largely stand the test of time, despite its wonky relationship with gay representation. I would say it has a wonky relationship with Nazism as well, but frankly, after all of my hemming and hawing, I'm just going to give this over to Mel Brooks. I'm going to stay in my lane because he should be able to comment on Nazism any way he wants. Just stay in your lane, Jonathan. So as a reminder, the producers, of course, won in 2001 the award for Best Musical. The other nominees that year were A Class Act, The Full Monty, and Jane Eyre. What a weird cocktail of musical theatricality. What a weird year. Yeah, none of these other shows can stand toe-to-toe with the producers, so we're just going to let the producers, you know, keep that award. We're not going to go back in time and revise history. I've seen The Full Monty, and it's... Not especially entertaining, despite what many, many people would lead you to believe. No offense. I have no real reference for a class act or Jane Eyre, but that's not going to stop me from dismissing them. I dismiss you with a sneer and a hand wave. I sneer at you. Let's rank the show, shall we? I'm going to put the producers at the number three slot. Yes, very high. Uh, I know I said that I wouldn't read the entire, uh, you know, show ranking at this point because we've done so many episodes, but we have so many more to go. Why, why, Why spoil it? I like reading the list. I'm going to give myself that gift. So, with the producers freshly added, let's get this rundown. We have 12 shows at this point. Number one, Carolina Change. Number two, Passing Strange. Number three, The Producers. Number four, Man of La Mancha. Number five, Kiss McCain. Number six, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Seven, South Pacific. Eight, Shrek the Musical. Nine, 
grind. 10, bubblin' brown sugar. 11, the goodbye girl. And 12, big river, the adventures of who? Who, 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 who? Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn. Uh, uh, uh. And that is the current ranking. Dun-dun-dun. Oi, show-related ephemera. So I really wasn't able to find anything directly related to the show, but I did find a really gross commercial, and it's a commercial specifically for a, a brand known as Producers Dairy, and it's weird. There's some sexual innuendo in it. I guess I'll drop it in, even though I know this is just so unnecessary. Let's just drop it in right here. I got mine during dinner. I got mine, and boy, was it good. I got mine, now it's your turn. If you're not getting yours, ask for producers by name. Since 1932, Producers has brought you the safest, freshest, best tasting milk. Three generations of family-owned, locally operated pride. You really can taste the difference. Ask for it by name. They're talking about milk, but at the beginning of the commercial, they're not shown holding glasses of milk, and it makes it seem as if they're getting laid, and it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's just really... I would not suggest looking up the real thing to get the video component. I just wouldn't recommend it. Now, normally, at this point in the show, we would take a ride on the musical carousel to determine which show we're discussing next, but as we've already mentioned, we have a you know our most recent... Patreon donor, uh, Haley, she, thank you, thank you so much. She's donating $10 a month, which is just so wonderful. Thank you so much, Haley. And as a Patreon donor, she is, uh, you know, she got her musical shout out earlier from The Witch from Into the Woods. If you didn't recognize her, who couldn't have recognized The Witch from Into the Woods, I do say. But Haley also gets to determine which show we discuss next on the podcast. And she has chosen a show that has actually come up a few times during this very episode. Oh, but which is it? We've mentioned a lot of shows throughout this episode. What, what could it be? Well, I'm going to solve the mystery right now. Our next episode will be dedicated to none other than Avenue Q. That's right, that show about dirty-ass puppets doing dirty-ass things. Ooh, you dirty puppets. I'm going to scold you, and I'm going to spank you on your little felt butts. When you're going to like it, you're going to say, Ah! And I'm going to say, uh. let's get some more information about the Patreon page. So we are on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash musical If you have the ability to donate uh, financially, to throw a little bit of money our way, you will go to that page, patreon.com slash musical and you will sign up. You have more than a few options at your disposal. You can donate one, three, five, or $10 a month. But of course, with every pay tier you get, this is Patreon we're talking about. So of course you get incentives. If you donate a dollar a month, if you donate a dollar a month, you're going to get a verbal shout out from me, the musical man, in every single episode. So let's do that now. Thank you so much, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Thank you so much again. If you donate $3 a month, you're going to get a musical shout out in the style of a musical theater composer or character. I'm going to reach out to you. We're going to talk about that and we're going to confirm who you want to hear. Uh, if you donate $5 a month, that's when you get to determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. And here's a little announcement for you. If you donate $5 a month, I'm adding 
a brand new incentive. So starting April 3rd, you're going to have access to a new weekly series of mini episodes. And these mini episodes are going to be under the banner of All I Ask of You. That's going to be the name of this new weekly show on Patreon. This is going to be an advice show hosted. Well, I should just have him talk about this. Phantom, you're standing right here. Get. I know, I know. You've been itching to get on a mic. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> Hello, it's me, the Phantom of the Opera. And who better to describe my show, All I Ask of You, I Ask of You, than me, the Phantom of the Opera. As John so ineloquently put it, it is an advice show, yes. I'm going to be fielding letters from the so-called villains of musical theater, and I'm going to be giving them advice on how they should be leading and living their lives. Oh, I'm getting a bit tongue-tied myself. <laughs> yes, uh, so of course, uh, I'm very excited to be starting this show. I, it's been a long time coming. I've been pestering here. I've been pestering this dear boy here, and Patty, of course, and they're giving me this opportunity. I'm very grateful. And I hope that you donate $5 a month, because every Wednesday, starting Wednesday, April 3rd, you'll be able to hear this mellifluous voice. Mellifluous. Mellifluous. I'm getting off, Mike. I'm tired. John, save me. That was the Phantom, so you're going to be, if you're interested in hearing the Phantom every week, uh, sign up, donate $5 a month, and you'll get access to that new show, All I Ask of You. And if you donate $10 a month, you're going to get monthly episodes. You're going to get monthly episodes in a series known as The Snub Club. These are full length. I should say the episodes of All I Ask of You are going to be about five to ten minutes, but the Snub Club episodes, those are full length, over an hour. And that series is dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. In February, we talked about Amelie, and the day that this episode comes out, we'll be dropping our second episode, which is dedicated to Merrily We Roll Along. Uh, while editing the audio for the Merrily We Roll Along episode, I realized that Tanya Pinkins, by the way, was a member of that show's original cast, and I completely forgot to point out how she would go on to play Caroline in Caroline or a Change. I need to get better at recognizing these names in general. The money that you donate to the show goes towards cast recordings, movie rentals, and it also helps to offset my Podbean costs. If we ever get to a point where we are seeing $100 in total monthly donations coming in, uh, that will result in me producing another series known as The Movie Musical Man, in which I talk about uh, movie adaptations of musicals we normally wouldn't encounter here in the regular feed. If you are listening to the show through iTunes and have already gone into the iTunes store and left a five-star ranking and review, thank you so much. And if you have not done so, and maybe are not able to afford to donate to the show financially, this is something that you can do to support the show that's completely free. So please take a moment, go into the iTunes store, search for us, five-star ranking, five-star review. We did, unfortunately, receive our first one-star review this past week. I believe that was Friday morning that I I, I had the misfortune of experiencing that right up top, and it, it kind of broke my heart and my brain for a little while. So if you want to make me feel better, uh, please uh, do do the do the right thing. Spike, please do the right thing. Uh, if you're streaming the show, that might be through Spotify or Stitcher or Podbean, Musical Podbean. I'm sorry, that's not it. Musicalmanpod.podbean.com. We are on Twitter at MusicalManPod, and you can email me directly at MusicalManPod at gmail.com. Thank you so much to our listener, Kelly, for writing in with a complete deconstruction of the 2009 Tony Awards opening number. I should say, I saw her tweeting about that on her uh, personal profile, and I asked her to uh, send in a deconstruction of this, and it was... 
Oh, it was such a delight. And it was such a, I'm telling you, look up the 2009 opening number. It is fucking bonkers and involves a blink and you'll miss it moment where Brett Michaels from the band Poison is fucking literally crushed by a rapidly descending set piece. It is just, it's its a nightmare. There's so much going on. That on, I, I mean, Kelly would agree. It deserves its own episode. That entire number deserves its own episode. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and Zach Little for our music. And without further ado, I'm just going to say, oh, <laughs> I was going to say that it was time to wrap up the show. But of course, I forgot about the all too scary, uh, the all too scary doorbell. Well, I mean, you know what that sound means? The sound of the doorbell. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Eh! Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Vita Shen, and good night. <laughs> <laughs>